This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and I'm joined here with two of my favourite co-hosts. It's Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. I managed to make it in without getting drowned, so I'm counting that as a win this morning. How and crazy is it? Yeah, and you're sober this week. <laughs> <laughs> an extra that, bonus. That is another win. <laughs> There you go, listeners, an extra bonus. She's really putting in the effort. And Dr. Jenny, how are you? I'm really sober. <laughs> as far as I can tell, perhaps yeah. I'm so not sober that, you know. That, that's a knows? trick, okay, yeah. That's, you're talking about sleep deprivation. <laughs> I don't know if it's being sober or just being exhausted. Yeah, that's t- No, no, I feel good. Just totally good? crazily wired and happy. And the rain, I love the rain, the garden. Mm, we, did lots of, we put lots of new veggies in last weekend. Well, I say we, I'm taking total credit for what my hubby did. <laughs> And the kids put in lots of new veggies, and yeah. so the rain's awesome. I yeah. put in some yesterday, actually. We yeah. bought a uh, a raspberry and a blackberry bush. Had to get those going. Awesome. So, there's yeah. nothing better than homegrown raspberries. Yeah, well, like, oh. and there's nothing worse than what they charge you in the supermarket. Yeah, well, because, that too. You know, these are these are kind of weeds almost mm-hmm. you know, in the way they grow, so mm-hmm. it always bothers me. They, I know they're hard to pick. Yeah. Takes time, but I'm willing to put in that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, favorite well, food of all time. Oh yeah, eh? raspberries. My view is I can pick them faster than I can swallow them, and as yeah. long as that is still <laughs> yeah, true, yeah. I'm good to go. Yeah, well that's why when you you know yeah. when you do you pick, you just kind of one for the bucket fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that right? Some people call that stealing. <laughs> no, you pay for it now. The oh, one that we go to, oh, they, they weigh you. No. <laughs> I hope not. That would be bad. No, but you pay a certain rate. They assume you're going to eat it. Because you've well, already you paid, paid for it. it. Exactly. I think that's only you that they charge. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else goes in just pays for what they, really? they pick. Okay. They, they saw you come. Yes, indeed. Let's get into some science, shall we? Mm, yes, most um, Dr. Lauren? Yeah. Here. Well, I um, was reading a really interesting thing this week about drones. And we've talked about drones quite a few times on the show before. So these, you know, obviously these unmanned craft different things. So obviously our military intelligence and surveillance comes to mind, but Amazon, I believe, are actually now oh, looking at having deliveries? drones for deliveries, yeah. which is pretty cool. And yeah. pizza delivery drones are apparently, you know, in the future as well. So there's lots of different reasons that we have They're them. big for conservation work. I was going to say, surveying that is actually animals. probably the mm. most important, really, for, from my point of view anyway. I'm not but, sure um, I want to get hit in the head no. by a box of books. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but one of the issues, obviously, when, when it is for conservation um, requirements, is that those drones are out in areas that are obviously quite fragile environmentally often. And so one of the issues has always been, well, what happens if a drone breaks down or crashes and then that those materials are left there in an environment, which we didn't really want them to be? Hmm. And so what has been happening is that some scientists are working on making biodegradable drones. And so the idea wow. with this, yeah, is that they will actually, if they do, you know, run out of batteries or they crash, or whatever, they're just going to break down and pretty much just be like they were never there to start with. So it's actually really cool materials that they're working with. So the actual bulk of the drone is made from the um, fungal material called the mycelium. So the mycelium are obviously the, the sort of the, uh, I guess the root-like parts of the fungus, and they're the ones that you, you guys might have heard about, which get really large. Mm-hmm. So the largest of these is around about two and a half thousand acres, or nine point seven kilometres square. So they're huge, huge, big um, things. And so it's obviously a, a very easily grown, easily harvested sort of material to make these. So is that one plant? One plant. Mm. It's wow. amazing, isn't it? Massive. That's Al- big. It's almost yeah. 2,000 football fields from one. I think fungus. they say fungi is the biggest 
Yeah. Mm, yeah. Living thing. Yeah. And it's quite amazing because you think about it. So I actually didn't really realise quite what this was used for now, but there's a company in the US which is using it for things like surfboard cores mm. and, and boxes right. and all sorts of things like that because it, it does break down really easily. Mm. Um, and so, which is interesting when it's for a surfboard, they do yeah, cover it. <laughs> Strong, yes. how, how quickly do you need them to break down? Exactly. You get one wave, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but obviously, because of the fact it breaks down easily, um, they are also using uh, waterproofing kind of coatings around the outside of the drone. And so they're using um, sheets that are grown by bacteria and also using uh, the proteins cloned from the saliva of paper wasps. So these are all wow. really unique materials. What about the electronics, though? How that, do you do a motor? That the batteries, I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess there are there are ways, though. I mean, there's a lot of conductive materials or, or conductive parts of organic mm. materials. Mm. Well, that's it. Well, that's, mm. a, I mean, that's the trick at the moment. So the ones that they have made, so the first one of these actually flew last week. So this is um, oh. uh, actually happening now. But you're right. At the moment, the electronics are not biodegradable. Mm. But they're working on that. And ne- um, Neurons. They yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're actually going to use, so for the sensors... So for Harvested the, from politicians. <laughs> Well, do they work? Yeah, no. We don't need them to do that fast. (laughs) Probably do the job. Just use a lot of them. Yeah, that's it. Parallel processing. They could get into a lot of trouble continuing on with this life. This drone only took the neurons of 12 politicians. (laughs) It only made a few metres. (laughs) 12 politicians or one independent. Is that right? Yes. Is that how it works? Yeah, about Oh, hang on, it could be the other way around. Yeah, well, depending, depending on the dependence. Especially at the state-based level. Oh, sorry. We probably should move on. Yeah, hi, 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 Jeff, if you're listening. Move on. But yes, no, so look, pretty much um, that is the next challenge that the scientists have. And so they're actually able to make sensors, so sort of sensors for location and movement and things using bacteria. Mm. And unfortunately, I couldn't find much more information than that. Well, still, I mean, even if it's the bulk of the body now is yeah. not going to be littering. Yeah. Well, that's it's a small, it. I mean, it's, you know, it's progress. Yeah, yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. And just really cool materials for, for using so many different things as well. I mean, if we can use, you know, the protein from saliva of wasps, mm. you know, that's quite yeah. cool stuff. Unless you're the wasp. <laughs> well, saliva, they've got plenty of it. Plenty of it? <laughs> I know, I always have this image of a whole lot of wasps chained to a wall with little drips <laughs> coming off their tongues, you know. I think, uh, anyway. <laughs> Moving, Moving on. Moving on, Dr. Jen? Well, I want to talk about Madagascan hissing cockroaches. Oh, yeah. Ooh. So these are big dudes, kind of up to seven centimetres, and they really do hiss. Mm. They kind of frighten each other off. And, you know, males try and attract females by hissing. I don't know if that's quite the best <laughs> tactic out there. But, you know, why not? Um, but what you need to know is that these guys are really excellent climbers. So big cockroaches can climb, can even climb up a glass wall, no problem. And last year there was a really interesting Kickstarter campaign to raise money for what has been called the world's first commercially available cyborg. So think <laughs> half insect, half <laughs> robot. And the deal oh was boy. that this group out of, um, where are they from? Uh, North Carolina State University. They made these little tiny backpacks that weigh 4.4 grams mm. and they are basically um, microelectronics and they taught people, or this, so this is something that you could um, purchase mm. and they taught you how to do this uh, surgery. So you get these online instructions how to do surgery to basically attach these mini electrodes to the antennae of the cockroaches because the way the cockroaches navigate is via their two antennae. So if one antennae on one side detects
gets um, something in the way, it turns mm. in the other direction. So very simple neurons basically to say there's a wall there, there's something else there, I need to turn into the other direction. Mm. And what they did was manage to um, attach these electrodes to the, to the antennae and then be able to send electrical pulses to the neurons in the antennae to control the way the cockroaches moved when they've got their little you know, oh, backpacks wow. on. Yeah. Mm. Just, just by swiping a smartphone, you could send the cockroach either right or left. Oh, wow. And this was built, there was an interesting response. So the Kickstarter was fully funded, people were into it, and there was a bit of backlash. Was it just a gimmick, the ethics of doing surgery on a live animal? Mm. Okay, it's only an insect, but how do we know how much pain they feel, that sort of thing? Mm. But the people who did it were basically arguing, this is do-it-yourself neuroscience. This is how we can teach people the basics of behaviour, you know, that's that's based on um, neuronal control, and this is how we can learn about the sort of neuroscience behind brain stimulation used to treat, treat uh, sorry, treat Parkinson's. It's also cochlear implants, you know, this mm. is what it's what it's all about. So they argue that it's a really good learning tool. But some of the responses, oh, I think this is a bit of a gimmick. Mm. But then this week they came out and said, well, actually, there's a really practical application for this. So they've got new backpacks. I think they also still only weigh about four grams because they've well, got to go on these little yep. cockroaches. Um, but they're audio sensing backpacks. And what mm. they are is high resolution microphones that can pinpoint very uh, specifically the source of a sound. So what you do is you have up to 10 or 15 of these little cockroaches out there. They've got their little backpacks on with these microphones then you integrate the information from all of those microphones and you can get an exact fix on where a sound is coming from mm-hmm. why is that useful well they're arguing it would be really good to try and find uh, victims of disasters so picture mm. people being buried mm. under rubble that sort of thing very small sounds in a massive you know kind of needle in a mm. haystack and if you've got these cockroaches that can climb anywhere go anywhere get through the smallest areas and can mm. pinpoint these sounds and then have microphones to actually record sounds back so you can actually hear you know is this person alive what mm. What's going on? And what would it record? A person saying... Not yet. Yeah. I'm still alive. Yeah, <laughs> Thump. Yeah, totally. And I was like, am I happy to see a cockroach yeah. in the backpack of electronics? What is this? You'd think you'd, you know, yeah, you already something gone. hallucinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, so, look, I think it's really interesting. They've also said they can equip them with Geiger counters to try and find leaks yeah. in nuclear power plants. So mm-hmm. I guess it's this whole mm. pop culture idea of cockroaches mm. can survive anything, go anywhere, do anything. And if yeah. we can equip, the, equip them with quite high-tech, you know, electronics to do useful things, things Mm. then maybe it's not such a gimmick and there's some really good you know ideas out there to to pursue Mm. so so at the moment then is anyone able to to purchase that and to do it yeah Yeah. so you can buy a cockroach you can buy the the little electronics Mm. you can get instructions on how to do the surgery Mm. which i think is i'm uncomfortable with that i'm uncomfortable i I mean this is that thing of you know start with a cockroach move on to a rat move Mm. on to a to a cat you know Mm. know, like if, if you if you devalue things in nature yeah. at an early enough age, you yeah. devalue them all. Yeah. Well, that was some of the some That's, of the commentary I read was really mm. interesting because they're saying this is a fantastically hands-on, mm. wonderful way to teach children about basically neuroscience. And I get that. I'm into mm-hmm. engaging that yeah. sort of, you know, kids in that sort of thing. Mm. But, yeah, if you also teach them that it's fine to do invasive surgery on an animal just because it's a cockroach, yeah. then exactly what message well, I think. Well, I think the message is simple, and that is human beings are superior to everything, everything on the planet. We can do whatever the hell we want. That, yeah. that's, that, it doesn't doesn't matter what you do that on, you know. Mm. When people start learning that lesson, it's yep. hard to get it out of them. Anyway, mm. it sounds it's very interesting stuff. Yeah, and look, um, these practical yeah. applications do sound really oh, look, yeah. interesting you can, you to can me. Get it. Yeah, yeah. You think we could make little cockroaches? Well, I'm sure we can. You know, robot ones. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm sure we could do that. Now, uh, geez, it was a big week in science this week. We left it to you to break the big one. You know, well, it's kind of old news now, but we'll talk about it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Folks, if you're not aware, 
some people, some very smart people who don't necessarily wear good shirts, no. landed, <laughs> landed on a landed a small craft on a comet this week. So. This is um, something that has been sort of 10 years in the making. You may have heard of this Rosetta spacecraft that actually was sent up 10 years ago, and recently, we talked about it quite a bit on air a couple of months back, uh, managed to get itself into orbit around this comet, which, uh, to describe this thing, it looks like a kind of um, one side bigger than the other peanut, really mm. weird shape. Mm. Now, as you might imagine, if you wanted to then send a small craft down from that, larger craft to land on the comet it would be really nice if the comet was a nice round ball so you had some idea of the gravitational mm-hmm. interactions that it would have with that craft mm-hmm. unfortunately no uh, <laughs> peanut shaped not even symmetrical peanut um, which meant it was very difficult to um, to land this craft and they spent a lot of time picking a landing site and so forth but a couple of days ago, they managed to do this. Now, keep in mind that the, the gravitational pull from this comet is like, you know, I don't know, maybe a hundred thousandth of that of Earth. So mm. you, you could even argue there's almost no gravity to think of. There's enough to sort of, mm. you know, keep you nearby, but mm-hmm. that's about it. So if you don't land and kind of grab on, mm-hmm. you're going to bounce off. And that was actually what happened with the the Philae lander. It actually, apparently, it hit about a kilometre or so off target. So that's still pretty good in my book. Surely that's close. Pretty good. How big's the comet? Um, It's tens of kilometres. It's not huge, um, but it's... Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how big it is because it's, it's hard to say because it was odd shape. So mm. relative to where it hit, but big um, enough that that's not a big, big enough. Big it's error. not a big yeah. deal. <laughs> yeah. And then it um, and then it bounced up, uh, bounced about mm. a kilometre up, they think, according to its guidance systems. Landed again, bounced again. Yeah. Wow. And then finally came to rest. It was actually sitting side on originally, and, and some of the first images they got indicated that it was next to like a almost like a cliff wall. Mm. And that was particularly problematic because the damn thing's solar powered. Mm. So it has some oh. has some batteries, <laughs> but it's sitting in the shade. Yeah. And so they're freaking out. And um, this was uh, at, at about this time, so giving you the time sequence, you know, they just landed it. And about that time that night, my wife turned to me as we were going to bed and said, why would we do this? <laughs> now, I did it's answer the question. I think she went to sleep. Um, I was going to say, just, did you I answer the of your hours? Yeah. I just kept talking. I don't care. I'm going to give you the answer. Um, but the reason being, I mean, this is really interesting because there's been a lot of speculation over the years that, you know, human beings or the the entire evolutionary process on Earth started with something and that something may have come, rained down on Earth from early comets that were part of the original formation of the solar system. So two reasons. One is possibly the source of all life on Mm. this planet and two is this is a, let's call it a freeze-dried sample from the early formation of the solar system untainted. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you go and dig up something on Earth... Uh, tainted. Mm. But if you can grab something from that early formation days, I mean, that gives you a picture back in time that's mm. just extraordinary. Billions of years. So, pretty cool stuff. So, of course, the next thing for the craft to do after I gave my wife the explanation, <laughs> which I have to say was pretty damn good, um, although she made it, I think she nodded off, <laughs> was, it, it, you know, it had to try, they had to try and get it to right itself, um, because it was actually, of its three legs, it was only sitting on two, and one mm. was poking up in the air, so that was a bit of a problem, so they thought maybe we could get it to right itself, and there's all sorts of ways it can do that. It's got these mm. little thrusters and various things. So they got it to write itself. And then was the big moment of it drilling into the comet and getting a sample. Now, keep in mind, almost no gravity. Mm. The parts of the craft that would 
grab onto the um, the comet were not working properly. Mm-hmm. And so when it came down, it actually can sort of embed in the comet a bit, but it only went a few centimetres in. So they were mm. worried that the second they started drilling, the drill would push the comet, the comet oh. would push back, and it would just fly off into wow. space. As it turns out, that didn't happen. So they believe they've managed to drill. And uh, if people were noticing yesterday on Twitter feed, I mean, I was basically like, Liv, I was going crazy. <laughs> I, I sent more tweets in one day than I have in my entire life. Just going nuts. And uh, so they've got a sample now, and the data has been sent back. And at one point yesterday, it seemed as though there wouldn't be enough energy left in the craft to send the data back. So oh. this is this is... You know, left-handed versus right-handed molecules. What's in this comet? Is it the same as all life on Earth or mm, not? Mm. Real meaning of life stuff. Yeah. 80 watt hours required to send back the data. Mm-hmm. They think they had 100 in the bag. <gasps> so it was real touch and go. Mm. Anyway, they have received the data, they believe. So it's being analysed and so forth. But And the comet, sadly, uh, sorry, the um, craft has now shut down. Mm. So bye-bye, Phil A. But you are... Uh, you worked well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just find so it it's extraordinary that oh, yeah. it can be done. It's yeah. extraordinary. So, you know, a big, um, a big clap to the European Space Agency because this mm. is this has been a ten-year project. It's extraordinary, and short of next year's um, Deep Horizons mission to Pluto, which you know is going to be a really exciting 2015. I think this is one of the greatest mm. things since Cassini got to um, got to Saturn. I mean, I know there was a big hoo-ha about the Mars rover, but let's mm. face it, we'd been to Mars a few times before, and mm. it was great. But this is completely new ground, mm. and, and this yeah. comet was just um, just extraordinary. And seeing pictures of the thing close up, and mm. um, so get online folks there'll be heaps of heaps of stuff to look at and heaps of data coming in and it's amazing as well just that that whole thing of you know how how smart the guys were to be able to just you know improvise i think you know because there's so many things along that that could have been a big issue but they just managed to you know get it to work it's it's so exciting and one of the guys you may have seen this but Mm. one of the scientists did wear a shirt that was a bit Mm. provocative yes um but worse than that it was just a really bad looking (laughs) shirt Equally bad. I don't know if that's worse, but it was a very odd choice. I mean, you look at that, you think, dude, you've got to be on national television. Sorry, international television. And that's what you selected? (laughs) And it's got naked women on it. Good work. Mm -hmm. Um, You're obviously a very good scientist because socially you have serious problems. (laughs) Anyway, uh, he's he's been made famous for the wrong reasons. But, um, yeah, big congratulations to the European Space Agency. Mm -hmm. They've pulled off an absolute, you know, ripper of Mm -hmm. a a bit of science and we'll be looking at hearing about the data for for months to come, I suspect. So Mm -hmm. that's cool. Triple. And we're back here on 3RRR, and uh, we do have a guest on the phone now. Her name is Ashley Hay. Ashley, can you hear us? I can. Now, Ashley, you've put out an amazing new book called um, It's the Australian Science Writing of the Year. It's a 2014 edition. And this is something that we're particularly interested in because our um, our crew is actually involved in uh, in writing one of these articles. Oh. Diani Lewis is one of our, our members here, and she has one of, the, uh, one of the parts of the book. Tell us a bit about... Now, this is the fourth one, isn't it? This is the fourth anthology. So the very friendly people at um, New South, which is part of the University of New South Wales Publishing, mm-hmm. have been publishing this for four years now. And the idea is, I guess, to just give people a bit of a selection, a bit of an overview of some of the different kinds of science writing that have been published in Australia from each previous year. Um, thanks to the very kind people at the Copyright Agency Cultural Fund, there's also a prize that goes with the three prizes, the Bragg Prizes for Science Writing, and the shortlisted authors are all included as well. So you get a very nice... 
nice selection, including, as you say, a very nice piece about the thing called a cave that lives down in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, now, Ashley, tell us, um, in terms of the selection, how do you, I mean, there's so many, how do you, is this something that people, like, put their name up for, or do you go around selecting them? How do you put this group together? It's a bit of both. So the selections, the submissions open in December of each year, and we try to spread the word in as many directions as we possibly can, um, out through, you know, sort of popular media, out through more specific scientific magazines, out through scientists themselves, out in any direction we can think of. We take submissions, but also um, I think each of the editors over the four years have also sort of kept their eye out for their own things that they're interested in including. And, of course, the problem is um, the book is about 85,000 words long, and there are many, 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 many more pieces than that that you would like to publish. So then it becomes a process of reading everything, which is, you know, a pretty long-winded job, but a fairly lovely one, and deciding, in my case, what I wanted to do was to find pieces that sort of spoke to each other as well as pieces that were very strong pieces of writing on their own. And then it was the awful whistling and selection, which, um, yeah, is, is the least fun part of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, just to clarify, are these pieces that have appeared elsewhere that you've then sort of re-edited for this book, or are they specifically written for this book? No, they're not commissioned for the book. They've all been published elsewhere, and um, they don't go through much editing. The idea is, because it's the best Australian science writing They've got to be pieces of writing that are great, you know, before mm. someone like me takes a red pen to them. Um, so I think for our book, for this particular edition, it was uh, things that had been published either in a traditional print forum or online between January of last year and the end of March this year. Um, and, yeah, that, as you can imagine, gives you a fairly broad overview. We also considered excerpts from books. Um, I think we have about three poems in there this year. We have a fantastic short story by a lovely guy from up here in Brisbane called Gareth Dixon, and I work a lot as a novelist these days, so I was really pleased to be able to bring a piece of fiction in. And to be honest, there were sort of four or five really fantastic short stories that um, that could have made their way in. So, again, then it was the choice of working out which one sat best in the mix, I guess. So, Ashley, um, whereabouts, like, where are your author's backgrounds from, I guess? So are most of these people scientists or are a lot of these people journalists and writers more so? It's, it's a bit of a mix. So we've got some scientists writing, we've got some journalists, we've got journalists from mainstream um, publications like The Australian and, you know, specific con- uh, publications like Cosmos. Um, there are very well-known names like Tim Flannery and McCalman, whose magnificent book on the reef came out last year. We've got an extract from that. Um, but what I was particularly pleased to be able to do was we've also got a couple of people in there who write specifically for science writing publications for kids mm. and I think that's um, a very interesting sort of thing to play up as well just uh, I don't know it's always fascinated me that, that children are sort of naturally curious naturally engaged natural scientists in a way mm. um, and so I really wanted to sort of try to bring some of the material that was going out to them into the book as well just to give people another idea of a different kind of voice and I guess a different kind of clarity because that's you know the big thing for writing for a younger audience as well. Mm. It's certainly uh, interesting to see all of this put together. How do you um 
how do you find it yourself? Is your background science or, or is, is it a non-science background? Um, I have a non-science background. I've worked for a journalist for, as a journalist for about 25 years and I've written yep. quite a lot of science during that time, but I also write about arts as well, so I, I sort of straddle both sides of the fence. Um, I guess, like a lot of people, I, I hadn't studied science since I left high school. The picture that I had from, of science when I left high school didn't really bear any relation to, you know, processes of scientific research or scientific practice. Jeez, I've never heard anyone say that before. <laughs> it's a really out-of-the-box thought. Um, <laughs> but when I was working as a journalist, when I started working as a journalist, one of the first stories that I got sent off to do was a profile of a fantastic guy called Elwood Zimmerman, who was Australia's foremost weevil expert at the time. <laughs> right. And I think he was in his 80s by then. He had this extraordinary, it must have also been Australia's foremost collection of weevils in his rumpus room on the south coast of New South Wales and I just found I found the time that I spent with him extraordinary not just that I suddenly realized what extraordinary creatures weevils were but starting to understand things you know like very simple things like the fact that taxonomy was still work that needed doing whereas if anyone had asked me I probably would have thought that belonged back in the you know 18th and 19th centuries and yep. what could we possibly be trying to do up against the edge of the 21st century and also things like the fact that, you know, he was a man in his 80s and one of the big reasons that he was interested in this profile being written was he was trying to find a young researcher, maybe even an honours student, who could come in and help him try to do the work. Now, he was working through CSIRO, but by that stage in his career he was working as an adjunct researcher, which of course meant he was doing it for free. And I mm. found this whole thing utterly fascinating. His passion, his description of the work that he did, these extraordinarily exquisite publications that he produced. The fact that this was now, you know, essentially a hobby in his later years, but he desperately needed someone to come along and pick up, you know, everything that was going to be left. And I think it was a combination of, you know, beginning to understand the work that he was doing and also the passion that drove the work and the circumstances around it that made me look at scientists as a different sort of source of stories. And I went on and, you know, wrote about all sorts of different people um, who worked across all sorts of different fields after that. Mm. Look, it sounds great. I uh, I have a copy here which Dr. Lauren has already um, ripped off me, which so <laughs> I'm not even going to get to read it before she has it. She's pretty excited about it. So, Ashley, congratulations on putting this together. It's it's great to see all these different authors, um, especially Australian authors, in the one place at the same time. Especially good to see our own Dr. Diami Lewis in here as well. Absolutely. Um, the book is available, I assume, now? It is, absolutely. We launched it a couple of weeks ago in Sydney, so it's out and about. Great. So it's the best Australian science writing for 2014, folks, by New South Publishing, edited by Ashley Hay. Ashley, thanks so much for talking to us, and good luck with the book sales. Thank you very much. That was Ashley Hay. Um, we're going to take a break now, folks, and we'll be back in a moment. We have another guest who uh, we've just spirited in from overseas. It uh, should be pretty cool. Hang in there. 102.7. You are listening to 3 R. It's Einstein and Gogo. It's a science program, if you haven't guessed it. And we are joined in the studio now by a foreigner, which we are... <laughs> allow in from time to time. Assistant Professor Michelle Smith, she's from the School of Biology and Ecology at the University of Maine and is a member of the Maine Centre for Research in STEM, if you're not sure what that means it's science, technology, engineering and mathematics education in the USA. Why do they always put mathematics out there as a separate thing, Michelle? Tell me. <laughs> That's is a good that question. The, is it the mathematicians that like it or? 
You know, I I don't have a good answer for you. I think the STEM acronym is pretty handy for right. us to use, so I'm going to chalk it up to that. But I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. That's amazing. Now, you work in particular on helping students learn biology, and and coming from a person here who dropped biology after year 11 because. Boring. Oh, no. um, I mean, what, what, what is, and now, you know, I love the stuff. I mean, you know, Dr. Jen comes in and whatever she says out of her mouth, it's gold to me. But, but what, that's just in general, it doesn't have to be about biology. But, but what is changing in the way we teach biology and what is, what is wrong potentially with the way we teach biology at the moment? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was going through the university, biology was very much the memorization of facts. Mm. You would learn these facts and then later when you got to graduate school, you would figure out what it's like to be a biologist. So what we're really trying to do now is help students understand what it is to be a scientist or biologist early on. So instead of just lecturing facts to them, we involve them in um, problem-solving, inquiry-based activities where they do laboratories, where they're exploring questions right from the get-go when they start at the university. Mm. Um, And part of that is to help with retention. So in the United States, we about 40 to 45 percent of the students who start in STEM fields will graduate with degrees in STEM fields, and we lose the majority of students between the first and the second year. So we're trying to make it more exciting and enriching so they understand what the career is about, and also um, we're monitoring their learning to see how the changes we're making improve um, Mm -hmm. their ability to understand the basic concepts. It's interesting when you describe that difference between memorization and recitation and actual science and I, and I think you know I, I remember doing bits of art history in high school and it was memorization and recitation and it disturbed me that biology was taught in the exact same way like it was the same you know it's just information there was no science there right. and there's people like Keith Yamamoto and others who are talking about this new biology and the way in which biology needs to shift towards a, a real fundamental science from the understanding perspective of actually understanding the processes not just looking at the outcomes of those processes and trying to link them with things right. Have we been sort of tainting the the entire, you know, scientific population in a way by that poor way of teaching biology? Is it going to restrict us, do you think? Um, I think what it's done is it's limited the diversity of people who are interested in the field. So, of course, you know, I survived the memorization Mm. in college, and so did my colleagues that I work with now. Um, But what we want to do is be able to reach out to a variety of students, the students who are leaving because they're not good at memorization or they're not smart enough. We want to be able to reach out to them and show them that there's a lot of thinking and problem solving, and we as biologists would benefit greatly from more diverse perspectives. Mm. And presumably these days, I mean, data is on hand to all of us. Yes. So there's two parts to that. One is we can get it all from our phone, whatever, so we don't need to remember it. Right. But secondly, the sort of data presumably we're talking about now is in the terabytes range. Right, right. Memorization? Sorry, folks, I can't. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's exceeded that, that challenge, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah. I, I think back to when I was finishing up my PhD, I was doing a lot of genomic sequencing, right. and the things that would take me weeks and months would take me matters of minutes now. Mm-hmm. So that technology I have to now go and seek out to learn how to do that. And it's the learning how to learn about the technology that's important, not just the memorization yeah. of how it works. Yeah. And I think that's also something that students can really understand because, you know, every you and I say to students, I'm not going to test you. I don't want you to rote learn anything. I'm not, I don't expect you to know any of this stuff. What I expect you to know is the basic principles so you can work things out, you know, from, from first principles, essentially. Right. And, and that makes 
make sense to students because you explain, you know, any fact you ever need to know, you can find on your phone in a millisecond. That doesn't actually help you. And if we think about it in this context of, you know, we say that the jobs, you know, Professor Ian Chubb, chief scientist, one of his key arguments now is the jobs that the kids who are in primary school now are going to be entering the workforce with, we don't even know what those jobs are. So we need to be equipping people in science with skills that we don't exactly know what the skills are yet essentially so thinking and thinking clearly and thinking critically is important rote learning facts is irrelevant because we can find anything we need you Mm. know instantly now and students get that i think and it's important to have students on board with understanding why we're trying to teach differently yeah i mean i i have the most exciting job i could imagine i Mm. go in i solve problems i deal with people um and i i want to convey that enthusiasm at the start so that a diverse group of people feel that it's for them as well Mm. Tell us a bit about how you go about modifying this, the, the entire teaching regime there because mm-hmm. essentially, and as, as Jenny just said, universities in the past in particular were the holders of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, none of us, you know, if, you're, if you're really rich, you could buy Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, we just didn't have the knowledge, whereas now they are no longer the holders of that knowledge, which means it comes down to process and it comes down to learning. Mm-hmm. How do you completely shift the education <laughs> scenario to, to deal with that change? Yeah, that's a great question and a question that a lot of us are actively researching the best way or the most effective way to do that now. Um, I could speak a little bit from the University of Maine and what we've been doing now is we've been cataloging how we are teaching currently. Um, so we use a protocol that looks at how instructors and how students are spending their time in the mm-hmm. class. We're not making any judgments. We're just reporting to people <laughs> how often they're lecturing, how yep. often they're having students solve problems. And it's been great. We've involved um, middle and high school teachers, so grades uh, 6 through 12 teachers, um, to come in and record that information for us. So we have an outside source coming in. Again, not a threat to the faculty at all, um, picking up the information. And then what we're doing is taking the information about how people are spending their time and designing professional development. So, for example, we were finding that instructors that were teaching the really large courses, courses that have hundreds of students Mm. in front of them, were still doing a lot of lecturing yep. and so we've decided to, we've designed professional development around how to incorporate active learning techniques such as problem solving um, we have students with clickers which are these remote controlled devices that allow them to vote yep. answers to questions and talk about them so we've been focusing on that um, so sort of step one was collecting the information and now step two is trying different things to see if we can modify um, it's a slow process but I would say the faculty have been amazingly receptive to giving things a try and so I feel that um, with the supports in place that will be making more differences mm. as the years come. Mm. So this program sounds like it's obviously very targeted at the university system. Do, do you know, is your program yeah, expanding out to high schools and primary schools or do you know of other programs that do that? Oh, that's great. So we just put in a grant before I came here to expand to the high schools great. Um, because what we're noticing is there's not a whole lot of difference between a first semester university student and a senior high school student student, but their educational experiences are quite mm-hmm. different. You know, the mm-hmm. high school student isn't sitting mm-hmm. through lectures and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden they're expected to once they get to the university. So what we're hoping to do and hoping to get funding for is to start a program where the faculty who are teaching the introductory courses are partnered with the high school teachers Gosh. and they start to observe each other so they can have a greater understanding where the students are coming from. Fantastic. So, great question. Thank you. So it sounds like what you're doing is just terrific and, and I guess, you know, my own perspective is from the University of Melbourne 
Melbourne where we're certainly trying to do similar things and our first year biology course yeah we've got about 1500 students so mm. you know for the staff member you're giving the same lecture three times over yes. in the same day to yes. get it to the students so, with the know. same level of enthusiasm <laughs> well you know you try and it's yeah. hard you know three yeah. times a day and but one of the things that um, I'm really noticing is at the same time as we're becoming so much more aware of active learning techniques and sort of student centred teaching and you know it, it, it's it, as that is ramping up our budgets are, are mm-hmm. being cut back further and further and further so, so all the things we'd like mm-hmm. to do like more labs more pracs more bringing animals in all the stuff we'd like to do and mm-hmm. at the same time we're being told no no you, can, you have to do less of that we can't afford to do any of that mm-hmm. you can't even afford to have students in a, in a lab class once a week anymore it has to be every fortnight how are you guys coping with that mm-hmm. side of things because i'm assuming it's the same it is exactly the same <laughs> it seems to be a universal uh, phenomenon going on now you know i think um Certainly having great labs and other things can really help the educational experience, and I don't want to put that down at all. But one of the things, you know, we've just been thinking about are ways to incorporate free things into your Mm -hmm. class. So, you know, right now I teach a genetics course, and I have the whole class driven by questions. So we're answering clicker questions. Um, So these are multiple-choice questions I'm posing to the class. I give them time to to vote on their own, talk about it with their neighbors, vote again, and then I'm responding to it. And that's how I, um, you know, run my class. I also do a lot of paper and pencil problem solving. And so little things like that um, that don't cost as much are, are some ideas going forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michelle, one of the things that I, I'm very interested in your view on is this sort of infusion now of online content yes. and i have to say i mean you know from my perspective i mean i have had a myriad of crap lecturers teach me in my my time at university but i still have to say there is no better way to learn than being in in the room with a great educator yeah and so whenever i hear this you know oh, you can get online and say well hang on the conversation's gone Yes. More or less. I mean, what do you think about that? Is is this the way education should go, or do we have to resist this a bit and and work more on making our educators, you know, amazing communicators? Yeah. So certainly, I understand the attractiveness of online education, both for students who are many mm. places, and also for universities who are trying to cut budgets. But I agree with you. You know, we know now that lecture is not effective. So why mm. would it be effective if I recorded myself and then put myself <laughs> online? Or, or, or the other, <laughs> more effective? You know, it's yeah. Like, why would it be yeah. more effective? You'd think it would be even less. Yeah, yeah so well, I, it is. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> so, I mean, if people are having these interactive lectures online that involve all the things we have live, maybe that's a solution. But I'm really, I'm not excited about the idea of just, okay, if I record myself explaining something and put mm. it online, suddenly it's better. Because we know that's not good in a classroom situation. Yeah. Um, so... So yeah, so we need to move towards the yeah yes. te- teaching the teachers how to do different things. I agree. Jim? That's exactly what I wanted to follow on from. Are you finding that, that the staff are really um, welcoming to the idea of putting more time into that? Because I think, you know, from where I sit, I love teaching. It's what I do best. It's my life. I'm happy to put a lot of time into improving my own teaching practice. But that's just me. And I recognise that for me to come out and to say to my colleagues, you know, you need to try this, you need to try this, because the sort of teaching you're talking about takes a lot of practice because it's very much on the spot. You can't pre-plan it. You have to off-the-cuff respond to student comments. It's, you know, it's much harder work. And for academics who are incredibly pressured with their time, um, you know, the demands of academia are, are 
pretty diverse and, and can be pretty hard. I, I often wonder if it's really inappropriate for me to expect somebody who mm. is not that into teaching, and that's fair enough. They're really brilliant researchers. Is it fair for me to expect them to do more? Are you finding that staff are really um, welcome, you know, welcoming the idea of doing more training? Well, I do want to give a shout-out to my colleagues at the University of Maine because of all the institutions I've been at, I've found that they've been the most welcoming, the most willing to try these new things. But I think a lot of it has to do with the tone the administration at the university sets. Mm -hmm. So if the university administration says we value this, you'll be rewarded for this as far as tenure and promotion or keeping your job, Mm -hmm. I think that that makes a big difference um, to the faculty. And I think... um, that we need to come up with better ways to recognize what is good teaching and reward faculty for doing that, just like we know what it means to be good at research. We have certain metrics for that. In many places, and we even need to go further, I mean, I'd like to insert a small device into everyone's skull. Oh, okay. uh, I'm just going to chuck this idea. You you let me me know what you think. And if you ever utter the words, I have to teach today, Mm. it gives you a small electric shock. I think a large one. Yeah, a large one. (laughs) It depends where it's actually allocated to. Um, And and if, if on the other hand, you, you say... I have the privilege of teaching today. Right. You get a small pleasure reward, <laughs> or large, as Judy might like. <laughs> yeah, this, this is yeah. one of the problems, isn't it? We culturally, I think, have moved into this space, and partly because of the time pressures, where you hear people saying, oh, I have to teach today. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, no, you get to teach today. Mm-hmm. It is a privilege to teach students, and all, all lecturers, all teachers should have that view. And frankly, if you don't, and back to your point, Jenny, if you don't want to teach Go and work for a research institution mm-hmm. that doesn't require you to do so because you're in the wrong job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's not something you can sort of palm off. Is it, I mean, what do you, well, first of all, what do you think about that device? <laughs> <laughs> Considering we were saying earlier, we don't want to do invasive surgery on cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> Your ethics well, rules must be slightly different here. <laughs> well, we can do whatever. You know, it's all done in Tasmania, but we can do whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I honestly love university age students. I just think they're this perfect mix of wanting to mm. discover the world, silk everything out, silk everything in, figure out who they are. Um, and I agree that, you know, it's a great privilege. I learn so much from them. They keep me current. They keep me on my toes. Um, and I think that, um, we often remember sort of the tough cases with students, but I think just taking a moment to celebrate and recognize all the wonderful things the students have taught us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I agree. The university is a wonderful place, but it's a wonderful place because there's a lot of great students there. Yeah. Now, Michelle, just before we let you go, I know you've been working particularly um, into some of these pervasive misunderstandings that are occurring in genetics. Yes. Um, t- tell us about that. What, what are these misunderstandings that are occurring in genetics? Yeah, so a lot of them are very basic things. Um, So one of the ones that we've discovered is that students often think that DNA is different in every cell in your body. So the genes that are important for vision are in your eyes, and the genes that are important for making your heart work are in your heart. Um, And so we've spent a lot of time helping students think about how your entire genome, uh, the DNA sequence, is the same in every cell, and how that variation in gene expression can lead to cells having different functions. Mm. Um, And then another one of my favorite ones I have to mention since this is a public uh, broadcasting network is the difference between gene and allele. So often in the popular press, there are questions, do you have the gene for alcoholism? Do you have the breast cancer gene? In fact, it's the allele. And I think that uh, there are a lot of misconceptions that sort of come out of that. 
That doesn't sound anywhere near as good, though. It's <laughs> <laughs> the problem, you know. And, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I have to say, you know, recently I gave some talks on, on aspects of this and, and, and the word clone mm-hmm. and the misuse of the word clone. And similarly, you know, it's used for so many different... Well, it means so many different things to a biologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the popular press, it basically means copy of a human. Yeah, yeah and, right. and, Clone and, wars. Yeah, yeah you know, this uh, cool stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, this, this pervasive problem. And I think all scientists have to be more careful when they're going out into media and say and just put a stop to it and just say no that is the wrong term sorry mm-hmm. we can't use that right that's and refuse to do the interview if that's the case but, <laughs> you know sometimes you know put the ego aside of it and get the science right it can be hard michelle look it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio i hope your time here in australia i know you came over for the um the festival of teaching and learning in adelaide that's correct uh, but you've hung around you've come to melbourne good choice have a good trip back and uh, keep up the good work over there at the university of maine and um, hopefully we'll speak again yeah thank you so much for this opportunity great to talk with you Three, triple, ah. Now, I did want to mention uh, last week in the Pigeon Hole, Triple R Pigeon Hole, which I, I run to every morning with excitement, <laughs> I found the latest Australian weather calendar from the Bureau of Meteorology. Awesome stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to say, you know, I, I actually emailed a friend of mine's father who often puts great pictures he's taken oh, up on cool. um, Facebook. And I said, you've got to send this picture in, Ian. You know, get it get it in, into the um, into the calendar. But, um, yeah, I don't know if he has. But uh, it really is worthwhile, folks. I, I think you can order it through the um, the Bureau of Meteorology site. Um, I think Andrea is coming in next week anyway, so we'll find the details from her. But it is it's such a great collection mm. of pictures from, um, from around Australia. And the thing I like about it, it's the community photographs, so mm. the ones that the community have sent in. So congratulations to get another of those particular um, calendars. I think it is now the 31st one they have produced. Wow, so that's great. Congratulations, Bomb. Yeah, there's some interesting science on that. You oh, know. Yeah. Are the stats going up on those more pictures of, mm. you know, cyclones or lightning mm, or, you yeah. know, how is our weather changing? Well, usually they have these, you know, there's always some amazing cloud formation stuff mm. and some of them are, this year are really spectacular. So have a look at it um, and grab it if you can because it is... Um, it is worthwhile. We are pretty much out of time, if you can believe that. Gee, we had some great guests today. Thank you, Dr. Lauren. Thank you. Pleasure as always. Dr. Jen, thank you very much. Awesome fun. Thank you. Yep. And Liv for pushing our Twitter button things. <laughs> very cool. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Until next week, remember science is everywhere. And thanks for listening to Einstein and GoGo on 3 R. This has been a podcast from 3 R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.